It's the 24th of January, 2020, and this is the Room Now podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com. This podcast is brought to you by, guess what, RoomNow.live, next best meeting in rheumatology. This week on the podcast, the challenge of autoinflammatory disease. And when you're dashing and dining, what are you doing to your gout? And remember, your grandmother said, You only get one chance to make a good first impression. I think she was talking to you about rheumatology. So let's start with a discussion on psoriatic arthritis and what happens before you get psoriatic arthritis. This particular study looked at healthcare utilization by primary care doctors and primary care practice and also amongst uh, uh, musculoskeletal specialists in a cohort almost 500 patients with psoriatic arthritis and compared that to what was about 2,300 psoriasis patients. What they showed that there was a doubling of healthcare utilization um, with the primary care doctors, mainly for musculoskeletal complaints in the people who later on developed psoriatic arthritis. This was seen one year prior to the diagnosis. It was also seen as far out as five years prior to the diagnosis. The same can be said as far as the uh, utilization of healthcare specialists that are musculoskeletal specialists, maybe orthopedists, rheumatologists, et cetera. There was also a doubling of the need for more healthcare services, visits, diagnoses, testing, et cetera, suggesting that prior to the onset of arthritis, there's still a lot going on, maybe as much as five years prior to the diagnosis. Now, we do know there's some delay in the diagnosis here, but it's not five years and not even one year in most people. So is there such a thing as preclinical psoriatic arthritis? Yes, it's called psoriasis. A 30%, what is it, a third or 30% of patients with psoriasis are going to develop psoriatic arthritis. They should be watched. They should be treated seriously, especially when they have sort of nuanced musculoskeletal complaints, not necessarily having swollen joints or um, DIP disease or, or even axial complaints. I think it's an interesting study. Another interesting study comes from the um, Swedish registry. It's called the Rheumatology Quality Register, and they looked at what happens when uh, patients are put on biologics. And they looked at all biologics. They also looked at specifically at abatacept. And what they showed was that the patients who um, went on biologics, they had much longer drug survival of that biologic when it was the first drug that was being used, meaning it was the first biologic. So people who were biologic naive had a better chance of staying on that biologic compared to people who were on their second or third biologic. Now, does that make sense? It kind of does, but remember that the biologic survival um, that we really do experience well, I'll ask you, how often do your patients who start a TNF inhibitor or maybe even abatacept, how long do they stay on that? You'd say, well, really a long time. Well, the data actually argues against that. Uh, the, what is it, the uh, five-year survival or four-year survival is only 50%. About 15 to 20% drop out in the first year, and it's about 10% per year after that. So the patients, uh, not a lot of patients actually stay on their first biologic. So knowing that you're going to do best with your first biologic, I would suggest use your best drug first. Work on that. Uh, They did show that patients who are on methotrexate 
had a longer drug survival, especially when it looked, they looked at abatacept. They were 15% less likely to discontinue the abatacept. I tweeted a, a tweet from the ACR meeting because I was at a, meet, a, a conference this week and we were talking about autoinflammatory disease. Now, you know, they're the well-known autoinflammatory diseases like Muckle-Well syndrome and, and traps and uh, familial cold autoinflammatory syndrome. There's many of them. Stills disease could be under that category, but there's a lot of in-betweeners. You know, patients with problematic urticaria, uh, low-grade fevers, uh, intermittent uh, LFT abnormalities. Uh, again, it's hard to tell who has autoinflammatory disease or not. I, I won't go into the particulars of the case that was seen today. Oh, yes, I will. It, it was actually urticaria, um, poly oligoarthritis, and um, sort of uh, oral ulcerations. Um, and the patient responded wonderfully to an IL-1 inhibitor, initially anakinra, and probably needs to be on canakinumab because the patient's tired of doing daily injections. Anyway, the point of this, um, my tweet today was uh, that which was presented by um, Michael Umbrello from the NIH at the ACR meeting where he on stage said of all the patients seen in their auto-inflammatory clinic at the NIH, this is a world-class best service Smartest people, you know, Raphael, Goldback, Mansky, Dan, Kastner, all those people are there. 60% of those patients don't have a diagnosis. So don't feel bad when you're having a hard time reaching a diagnosis. Genetic testing may be helpful. Uh, that's more easily attained these days. Empiric trials of maybe an IL-1 inhibitor um, might also be the way to go. Uh, what about flares of RA? I don't know about you, but I think this is one of the biggest challenges in RA management, meaning patients flare. Um, they can call in and do you treat them? Do you bring them in to verify it? Well, this one study actually looked at 80 patients and followed them uh, prospectively over time. 36% of them actually had a flare with an increase in pain and swelling that was documented. But these were initially patient-reported flares, and so those patients, they brought in and they then did exams and ultrasounds and showed that there was pretty good agreement between the patient's complaint of swelling and or pain and the clinician's assessment. Like in 79 to 93%, much more so for swollen joints, that was a big surprise to me, than for tender joints. Um, so this was very, the patient complaint was actually quite specific maybe not as sensitive as you'd like it to be, but nonetheless, um, when patients complain with RA uh, about a flare, they probably are flaring. I think that this is a big challenge because we have what to treat flares? Steroids. Steroids, 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 nothing else. We need better strategies. The DASH diet, I alluded to it in our opener. This is a very interesting study about the DASH diet, which has been proven to be helpful in reducing cardiovascular risk in um, managing hypertension. Uh, a DASH diet is rich in vegetables and fruits, uh, low fat, dairy, whole grains, poultry, fish, nuts. Um, it's been proven to help gout patients. Here's a very large study from China, 72,000 patients compared to who were on the DASH diet compared to uh, I think 140,000 people. And it showed that those on DASH diets had basically 30% lower uric acid levels. Now, none of these people had gout going in, but they just monitored their uric acid levels. These reductions were greatest in people over the age of 50, 
um, women and those who are physically inactive. Those were very significant. So again, a DASH diet, not a bad idea in everyone and maybe those who may be at risk for gout. We tweeted a, a sort of review about IL-37. IL-37 is a cytokine from the IL-1 family. Um, and this particular review, they talked about it being a potential target in the management of psoriasis. Why? Because IL-37 uh, has actually been um, down-regulated in lesional skin compared to non-lesional skin of people with psoriasis. IL-37 levels seem to correlate with the psoriasis activity. IL-37 is a, is a self and anti-inflammatory immunosuppressive cytokine. It will suppress a number of things, including IL-10 and IL-18 and whatnot. And maybe it should be the target of therapy. The, the authors of this paper interestingly note that tofacidinib has been shown to increase IL-37 levels, and maybe that's the mechanism by which it works in psoriatic arthritis. It was not quite as effective in psoriasis, not approved for that in psoriasis, because you need very high doses. But nonetheless, it's interesting to, to see how IL-37, another cytokine, could be involved. Uh, a meta-analysis looked at the role of hydroxychloroquine, its clinical and, and radiographic success, and showed basically the success, the efficacy of hydroxychloroquine was similar to or slightly lower than that seen with methotrexate or sulfazalazine. Also, when hydroxychloroquine was added to other DMARDs, it increased the efficacy by uh, standardized validated measures. However, the, the ability of hydroxychloroquine to improve structural outcomes really hasn't been very well documented. I put up a report about TB and the risk worldwide. This is a sort of country by country evaluation of TB risk, especially in people on TNF inhibitors. The worldwide risk for people on TNF inhibitors is about 10 cases per 1,000. Uh, it was higher in Asia, where it was 13.5 per 1,000, and in South America, where it was 11.7 per 1,000. It was lower in non-TB land countries, non-endemic areas like Europe, where it was 6.3 per 1,000, and in North America, where it was 4.3. The number of TB cases in the United States is about four, four cases per 1,000. It's gone down, actually, every year for the last several years. And... This says several things. Number one, that number of 4.3 is t people on TNF inhibitors in North America, suggesting that in North America, where it's not an endemic problem, putting a TNF inhibitor doesn't raise the TB risk very much from 4 to maybe 4.3. The same can be said in Europe, again, a non-endemic country. But in endemic countries where risk is higher, it clearly augments the risk and the risk uh, you should recognize that those countries um, are uh, people who live in those countries who may come to the United States and live here are have a, a higher constitutive risk. We put a tweet out about the role of uh, TIF1 gamma antibodies in the diagnosis of patients with dermatomyositis, especially the TIF1 antibody being linked to a risk of cancer uh, in patients with dermatomyositis, and that it may impart a risk of cancer when found otherwise. That's part of what the paper was about. I bring it up because this is a new profile of myositis antibodies that you may consider ordering. Now, we have all the other ones we would get, the JOE1 signal recognition particle, EJOJ, MI2, PL7, PL12. That's part of a panel that you may do, uh, many of which are involved in the antisynthetase syndrome that we're all familiar with. But now we have these new antibodies, TIF1 gamma, 
dermatomyositis and cancer. We have MDA5. Those are patients who have myositis without much in the way of skin, I'm sorry, skin disease without much in the way of myositis and are high risk for lung disease and really bad skin disease and ulcerative lesions. And then NXP2 antibodies we've talked about in the past, those are also cancer-associated an antibodies in patients with dermatomyositis. They're also seeing people who get calcinosis. So I'd like to see those in myositis panels. It is actually offered in um, myositis pa panels with some companies, but not all. You may have to order them separately, and it may be worth ordering all three. Uh, the CDC came up with a nice report about uh, the United States and how common physical inactivity is. Across the board, at least 15% of Americans are guilty and admit to being totally inactive physically. And that's a sort of cry and shame because the inactivity has been proven to contribute to at least one in 10 deaths in the United States. The numbers basically range from a low of about 17% to a high of about 47%, really higher in southern country, southern um, states like Oklahoma, Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, uh, also Puerto Rico, higher in Hispanics and non-whites. Um, this is a big problem. And while I think physical, physical inactivity is a problem, I think strength is an even bigger problem that no one's talking about. But anyway, this CDC report was about physical inactivity. We'll end with a discussion of hydradenitis suppurativa. As you know, um, this is a, a, an uncommon problem. It's sort of grouped in the spondoarthropathies um, pile. I'm not sure it really qualifies. The question is, if you develop hydradenitis suppurativa, for which there is an FDA-approved drug now with um, adalimumab, achieve that through an orphan um, uh, application, orphan drug application. Um, the question is, how many of those people will develop inflammatory arthritis? Well, turns out that having that diagnosis um, increases the risk of, of developing ankylosing spondylitis by 65%, psoriatic arthritis by 44%, rheumatoid arthritis by 16%. It sounds like it's somewhere, it's not quite doubling, but it's an increased risk of developing inflammatory arthritis with hydradenitis suppurativa, and then maybe aggressive therapy like anti-TNF therapy might be appropriate. The bad news is that it's, this is a rare disease, and this manifestation is still going to only result in about two to six additional cases per 10,000, per 1,000 patients who have hydradenitis for one to two years. Nonetheless, it's good information for those of you who do see these patients. Um, be sure to check out RoomNow.Live. Uh, RoomNow.Live is a meeting that's designed to change your mind and your practice. More next week on the podcast.